Welcome aboard the USS Aeronome. To become a member of our crew, please visit perfectorganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to Subdeck 3 to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard. I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right, right baby? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation is... Move! Get out of there! Move! Dad! Move, Dad! Move, Dad! Get out! Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm joined by hosts... Patrick. What up, man? And nothing much, nothing much. Here we are again with another installment of Forbidden Planet, celebrating the 40-year anniversary of Alien. Uh, the, sh- the, the film is out in theaters right now. If anyone wants to go and watch it, I'm sure it'll come back. But this is, you know, a, a, a banner year for the film. That's a great time to go and celebrate it. So definitely, I've seen it in the big on the big screen. It's awesome. Um, so yeah, go check it out. And the Alien but, that is out in theaters right now is actually not just the film, but it has some extra footage um, added to it. It's got some like additional um, features um, in, as part of this anniversary celebration. So uh, definitely go and see it. I, I know uh, I and the guest who is silently sitting in the wings waiting to get introduced are going to be seeing it tomorrow night. So um, yeah, make sure you get out there. It's worth it. So speaking of silent guests, uh, we have with us tonight Mike Dennis, who is uh, a friend of mine, huge Alien fan. And uh, so first off, welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. Yes, welcome. So so the, the way that I got introduced to Mike was um, – so I he, he is kind of in charge of like the security for our building that, that I that I work in. And uh, and I was – I would be, uh, you know, upstairs in our office and people would be like, you know, there's this like huge sci-fi nerd downstairs <laughs> that you should probably talk to because he's like the only person nerdier than you are in this entire building. And I was like, that's probably impossible. People were like, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. But I never knew, you know, who they were talking about. And then one day I was walking back from you – know, I go for a walk during lunch every day. Um, and he saw that I had a Covenant shirt and he was like, hey, man, I love the T-shirt. And I was like, that's got to be the dude that they were talking about. And sure enough, he is uh, a, a, an extreme alien fan slash sci-fi nerd. And it is a pleasure to have you. So, Mike, what's your background with Thank alien? You. Who are you? Give us uh, some background. Well, uh, who the fuck are you? <laughs> uh, I, I'm a huge nerd. <laughs> uh, my introduction to Aunt, my my parents. I'm a huge sci-fi fan, and you know, my dad used to always take me to all these sci-fi movies when I was a kid. And when I heard him and my mother were going to see this new sci-fi movie, Alien, and they weren't taking me, I was pissed. And then, um, long story short, I got the the comic book um, adaption for Alien. And I was just hooked, man. Just the images in that comic. And I could not wait to see this movie. And eventually it came on cable and I was just off to the races from there.
So you didn't actually get to see it with your parents? No, no, not until it came on cable and I had to sneak it. And then it was just off to the races, man. Every time that movie was on, I just threw that remote across the room. And, well, back then I was the remote, so. (laughs) But uh, you, you, you get the idea. Right. Um, and, and you uh, you host these uh, pretty massive film parties, I know. You want to tell us about those? Yeah, uh, one, once or twice a year, we like to do a, um, a movie night, we call it, out in my yard. During the summer, we rent a giant 16-foot screen, and uh, we show a movie outside. And we try to always do something for an anniversary. Uh, I wanted to do Alien this year, but I was outvoted because, you know, it's a pretty dark movie, and we do have kids come to these parties, so... <laughs> You know, plus neighbors, and <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm I'm working on maybe doing it next year. It's just a, a special one night thing. Nice, nice. Um, something else I want to point out too about Mike is he has a, a prodigious collection of uh, figures, especially NECA figures. So if anybody on Building Better Worlds has seen, uh, he did this great this great one where he had Iron Man fighting off uh, a horde of xenomorphs, and then he photoshopped like a realistic hive background. And that's Mike. So if you see him on Building Better Worlds, you know, give him uh, give him some love because he's uh, he's doing great stuff. So thank you for coming uh, on. Really man. brilliant, really thank brilliant you. photographs. By the way, I was really impressed. Yeah. Thank you. That's just the start. I'm working on something big, but I don't want to spoil it here. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking to the wrong people. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, so the reason we're, we're, we're doing this tonight is because Mike suggested a number of episode ideas to me a while ago. And one that stuck with me, and, and it's something that I know Jamie would have a lot of fun with, too, is this idea of what the fuck was in the water in the late 1970s <laughs> in Hollywood filmmaking because it was a time where it was like everything was iconic. Every movie that was coming out was just an instant hit. It was new. It was brave. It was strange. It was successful. It was this moment of real synergy where like you had these new auteur filmmakers making things that were avant-garde but also pleasing audiences. Um, it was relatively non-franchised. And an Alien, of course, came out right at the tail end of that, right just a matter of months before the close of the decade. So uh, it's an interesting opportunity, I think, to take a step back, look at movies in the 70s, especially the second half of the 70s, talk through some of them, what works about them, what makes them iconic, and then to look at Alien through that prism. Um, And so I guess uh, to kind of kick things off, when you guys think late 70s cinema, what do you think? Jamie, you want to start? Well, the first thing I noticed about 70s cinema is that a lot of it is very dark, Um, very dark subject matter, difficult, difficult... um, difficult subject matter but a lot of it has to do with sort of um what we know isn't what we know and sort of that the, the rearing of the, the the corporate head and their their you know for instance soylent green comes to mind soylent green is people I, th- I can't remember exactly what year that was but it was in the 70s and the idea that what you think you know isn't true and this company that's sort of there supposed that's supposed to uh, be watching over you. They're actually insidious and they're doing bad things. Um, but a couple things right away. Jaws. Uh, Jaws comes to mind. Jaws yeah. is yeah. Jaws isn't just a a summer you know exciting film. It's also very dark. It's a very very dark film. It's it it's a film that you're sort of well the main character is you know there's something happening and no one's believing him no one's believing him something's going to happen we have to be careful and everyone's like shut up it's not that big of a deal and then of course things 
go crazy, just like he said, and all hell breaks loose. And then, you know, you have the film. But I feel like that's a very it's a very dominant theme in films of the 70s in different forms. So Jaws is a film that comes to mind. Uh, I'm just scrolling through right now. Um, The Omen is another film that comes to mind where you have this child that's born, but there's something wrong with it. So it's almost like the alien in the midst. But the parents like it's very I'm I'm actually going to watch that movie tonight. Um, I fucking love The Omen. I have that one written down, too. That movie scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. That kid creeps the crap out of me. Oh, Oh, my God. But it's so good. Yeah, yeah. So, like, those films come to mind, and then, like, I think about, like, Barry Lyndon, which was uh, a watershed film um, at, at that time, and then, like, then you have, like, well, I don't know, like, I think of films like Network, and um, I don't know, there's just so much. The Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which was completely terrifying. That's a film we're going to have to talk about in our Patreon series at some point. Yeah. Patrick, and who knows, maybe Mike can be on that Patreon. That movie oh, is I also, love that movie. That is so um, scary. But Invasion of the Body Snatchers, again, was a very specific moment in time for American cinema, or maybe cinema as a whole. And it, the film is essentially the story of these people are not who they say they are. You do, you cannot believe what you're seeing right now. And it, it was representative of sort of what was happening in world culture, American culture, where you know you have the American government sort of telling you, you know, about obviously uh, the Vietnam War being sort of the elephant in the room. Oh, this is what's happening, and this is why it's happening. But the truth is, actually, why this is happening is not what you're saying, and sort of that the idea that we're being lied to, and that's a uh, that's this theme that I find in a lot of films of the '70s where people are just being lied to over and over by the companies they work for or by the people that they know or those people in authority so that, that's my uh sort of first short long answer that's a good one mike what about you what do you think of when you think of late 70s well, movies well building on what you just said jamie um the warriors comes to mind yeah all of you stay behind me i'm gonna take them out to the sand what about you you ready let's do it Mm. Which is one of my one of my all time favorite. Oh yeah! I mean, oh, it's awesome. You know, it's it, it's so far ahead of its time, and I really think that movie would have been a much bigger blockbuster if the cinemas didn't get so afraid of the the little scuffles that were happening in the crowds. Um, but I mean, let's. Look, I mean, we got Rocky come out in '76. I mean, um, A New Hope in '77. The first Halloween '78. Saturday Night Fever. Taxi Driver. I mean, Superman. I mean, the movie. It goes on and on. I mean, what a five year span. You know, it Carrie. was just incredible. Carrie. You know, um, Apocalypse Now '79. Uh, it's just. I, I can't think of a period of time where more movies that were just so iconic i mean you're still watching them today and they were successful in terms of box office too that's something that is yeah. funny you guys are talking about these movies and i'm thinking in my head like what were the what like how did they actually do i mean you had jaws obviously which broke every fucking record in the book in 75 right and then that the was original the, blockbuster that was that laid the framework right and then you had star wars knock that off you had close encounters right up there with that you had uh uh, I mean, and then you also had movies that like, for example, by the time the late 70s rolled around, they were, we were finally getting kind of where all those Vietnam stories 
were like headed all along, which was Apocalypse Now, which was a huge commercial yeah. success, but also, I mean, such a critically important film that came right at the tail end of that decade, but was addressing things that had been kind of bubbling up all the way through. And Jamie, you were talking about this whistleblowing thing. I think you're onto something there too that I want to make sure we come back around to because a lot of the films you mentioned, like Network is a great example of that too, or movies like Marathon Man, that's what they're all about, right? It's all about authority basically gaslighting us or perverting us into thinking something is real that's not real, and then it's too late to do anything about it. And the corporations are winning out. And I think that's a theme that we see through um, <clears throat> through so much of this. I want to throw a couple thoughts out quick. Um, I'm struck by, as I was going through lists of 70s movies today, uh, how many like truly iconic horror movies came out almost just back to back to back to back to back. So before the 70s, I think horror was very much a, a genre. You know, it was it was genre filmmaking. There was incredible, don't get me wrong, there was incredible horror movies that came out all the way from, you know, the, the early 20th century through the 50s and 60s. You had the Hammer films. Obviously, you had the classic uh, Universal Studios films. But they were very much like genre, right? They were heightened. They were kind of extreme. They were sometimes campy. They were not what they became. And then in the 70s, you have The Exorcist in 73, which is kind of before what we're talking about. But The Exorcist also obliterated box office records, especially for an R-rated movie. You show me Reagan's double. Same face, same voice. Everything. And I'd know it wasn't Reagan. I'd know in my gut. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! It totally made people rethink the template for what you could earn with a horror film and that came out of this world where like everybody saw it everybody was terrified everybody talked to it talked about it about it with each other and then everybody went back and saw it again and that happened again of course with jaws just two years later where it was a movie that was ostensibly a horror film but everybody saw it and it made so much money and even between those two things you know, you had other horror movies coming out, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right, in 74. That completely reshaped what we think of uh, as horror filmmaking because it was so real. Even though it was a little ridiculous, it was very much like the films of George Romero, which also came out in the 70s, at least became more popular in the 70s, which were taking a lot of the practices of European cinema, which we'll talk about later, um, and using them to make horror more real and more believable. So you could almost feel it um, and sense it. And it set this interesting trajectory up that I think kind of um, found its apotheosis in the early 2000s when you had found footage take over as, a, as an idea, like you had Blair Witch and you had Paranormal Activity and these things, which I don't think have held up particularly well. But the reason why those worked well and made a lot of money is because they were so realistic. When you were seeing it, you started forgetting if you're watching a movie or not, right? And that was happening a lot in the mid-70s. Of course, then after uh, Texas Chainsaw, you have The Omen in 76, you have Marathon Man in 76, which by some standards I think would be a horror picture. You have The Hills Have Eyes in 77, and you have Wes Craven making, you know, Halloween in 78 and basically rewriting the template for what a horror movie can be and setting the stage for all of the slashers to come, which, you know, by and large can never live up to Halloween, which I think stands as a, a, a real masterpiece of that genre and also very clearly a progenitor of what we see happening in Alien, which is is this unstoppable force basically that seems to defy logic and you can't take your eyes off it do you know what's interesting uh there's a, a film that's an elephant in the room right now that is released in the time frame that we're discussing what film do you think i'm talking about elephant in the room that no one's mentioned dumbo <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Close Encounters of the Third Close Kind, right? 70, 1977. And yeah. again, it's, it's a similar narrative where you have this man that's experiencing these right something he can't explain, but he's being gaslit. Um, and there's this whole cover story going on by the government, but something he knows is happening. He doesn't understand what, but he knows there's something happening, and it's he's being drawn to you know I, I would guess the point of contact for the what will eventually be you know aliens landing on earth but what i also i found very interesting about the films of the 70s is it's setting up something that a lot of films in i'd say the early to mid 2000s really it kind of really blossomed but in a different way where i feel like a lot of films of the 70s all the entire 70s has this have have a dystopian feel to them it feels sort of like a, a reaction to this sort of um that picturesque 50s and the end of that by the end of the 60s and and this reaction saying, no, what we've always believed isn't true. Something else is happening. But it feels very dystopian. It doesn't feel – a lot of these films don't the, – the characters don't feel happy. The worlds don't feel – not that they have to feel happy or like, oh, gee, gosh – you know, you know, like kind of leave it to Beaver, but there's a very, there's a, there's a, um, there's just a, a veil of dystopia over so many of those films where I feel like they're, they're getting at something. They're looking for something. They're questioning everything. Like, no, what, what we've always believed isn't true. And whether it's Jaws or Close Encounters or so many, or I think of the film Clute, um, starring Jane Fonda, which is an amazing film you guys should see if you haven't seen it. Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland. Um, and it takes place in New York City during the 70s. Again, and she's this call girl, or I, I would say a prostitute. And there's these things that are un unraveling. Um, but again, there's this feeling about these films that feel very, and you can see it eventually in Alien. There's just this sentiment, this emotional, emotionally charged sentiment when these characters are speaking or when they're not speaking that you feel sort of hopeless and I don't, I don't know if you guys agree or disagree or what you think no I completely agree and and not to beat the warriors to death but I mean remember the end of the warriors and they finally get back to Coney Island and they get off the train Swan looks around yes. at this just shithole of a city and he's like right. yep. this is what I fought all night to get back to yep. you know and I think that kind of summed up a lot of the a lot of those movies back then you know the end of the movie wasn't like you said all sunshine and rainbows feels like it's a, an American cinematic awakening in some in some ways where film is really reflecting culture like it, for a long long time Hollywood uh, films coming from Hollywood or the system or the studio system were always I mean obviously you know you had like uh, you know James the films of James Cagney and you had the the all of those films that uh, were about the mobs and you know and the the film noir and the femme fatales and you had all of that and those were so fantastic in terms of the subject matter that they were still escapism where most of the films were either musicals or really feel good films with a good ending. And then world culture or American culture or American the emotional climate started to really shift in the 60s. And then certainly the blossoming of that was in the 70s. And I really feel like the Hollywood system at the time and their ability to take risks on on many different subjects, many different original stories and film was still somewhat new at that point. But the people in charge, everyone was going through this like awakening and you could just see it in every film you see that was released almost. And I would say that that awakening aspect came about 
precisely because of the destruction of so many institutional strongholds that had been guiding not just the film industry, but global culture for so long. You had obviously the Vietnam War, which was this huge wake-up call to so many people that the government was not what they thought it was, that um, we were involved in things that were clearly not meant to be involved in, that um, we couldn't trust necessarily what we were being told. So there was a collapse of of trust in in the government, which, remember, is coming after this, you know, American exceptionalist period coming out of World War II and and as the Cold War started up where everybody was very gung-ho. You know, we went to space and shit in the 60s, right? And then the 70s come along and everybody starts questioning, like, what are we really doing? You know, they start tuning in and dropping out, right? Um, So I think that's happening. And then in conjunction with that, you have the studios just completely imploding over the previous 20 years to the point where, you know, by the time the 70s rolled around, MGM is... uh, a fucking casino company, right? Um, and you have a couple that survive, like Universal, for example, but um, they're really focusing more on distribution. The production of these films is basically happening independently for the first time. And then the independent film production is getting picked up by these studios. But what I think is great and what I think we see a lot in the 70s with the emergence of actors like, you know, Robert De Niro, who had so many iconic film turns in the 70s, you can't even count them. Um, or, uh, you know, Al Pacino for, for or Dustin Hoffman. You know, there's a lot of these guys is that you have the emergence of like character actors coming into their own, right? Where people who would have been cast as like a sidekick in a 40s or 50s Hollywood movie are all of a sudden the protagonist. We're getting to see people who are non-traditional, who are idiosyncratic, who aren't as beautiful, but are beautiful in different ways. Um, Because in the past, the studio system revolved around these contracts with stars, right? You would get you know, a like a Humphrey Bogart, and they would just have a contract that would basically run out when they died, and and everything would have to star them. It was a vehicle for them. They would be coming with, um, you know, they would have to do so many endorsements, do so many television appearances with it. And then the seventies roll around, and they're like, hey, the government, we don't know what the fuck the government's doing anymore. We don't have a studio telling us what we have to do and what we what's unacceptable. What do we do now that things are new again? And I think that's what we see happening in the seventies. Yeah, right on. Um... You, you look at a movie like Saturday Night Fever and people like, oh, John Travolta, Disco Dancing Out. That's a dark movie. If you, re- I don't know if you guys have ever seen it. Oh, yeah, I've seen it. It's it really day. dark. I have, yes, never, not a ha- I have never seen it. It is not yeah. a, a feel-good movie whatsoever, even no, it, though there's some feel-good moments. Yeah, it, I mean, I, it, it, it is dark. And it's and I think it really, like, that captured the, the culture at the time, too, of the kids. I mean, they didn't know what to do. You know, the, the 19, 20-year-olds coming out of school – you know, they were, they were just they were just lost. I was I was just thinking about uh, the film Apocalypse Now and how that film. We're, you know, we're touching on a lot of different subjects in terms of what films were, what they were representing. But Apocalypse Now was really the apex of a film expressing what world culture was feeling like. This is bullshit. Why are we here? What are we doing? Why have we killed these people? And we, you know, we have to stop this. Your mission is to proceed up the Nung River in a Navy patrol boat. <clears throat> Pick up Colonel Kurtz's path at New Mung Ba. Follow it, learn what you can along the way. When you find the Colonel, infiltrate his team by <clears throat> whatever means available and terminate the Colonel's command. Terminate. He's out there operating without any decent restraint, totally beyond the pale of any acceptable human conduct. And he is still in the field commanding troops. Terminate. 
with extreme prejudice. It was a total, like, it was a moment in cinema history where I, I, I'm shocked the film was even made, to be honest with you, just because of the, <laughs> the backlash uh, uh, towards uh, the Vietnam War, just sort of what was going on. There was so much happening. And then, you, of course, you have Hollywood stars sort of protesting, like, of course, Jane Fonda, which who they call Hanoi Jane, <laughs> because she went and took a, a, a photo of herself with the Viet Cong. Um, and she's still loathed for that today. She's 81 years old, and people talk about her like she just did it yesterday. Yeah. Um, but it was uh, – uh, it was really a period of awakening um, in, in every respect. I think actually in some respects we're there again um, in, in a darker way, um, but a necessary way. But I think that was a turning point. The seventies was really, really a turning point and it, it could not be better expressed than in a film like apocalypse now or, or the deer hunter. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that, yeah that I was going to oh bring God. that up. You're right. That's also 79, right? Mike 78. 78, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that movie was just, that's all sorts of messed up. <laughs> and again, fucking Robert De Niro just cleaning up all the award ceremonies of this in this decade. Yeah, right? yeah and John Savage just killed it in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's something that I want to kind of touch on. I know we're jumping around, but I think it's okay because that's kind of what this conversation should be. You know, Apocalypse Now, I don't want to speak for you guys, but personally, to me, it's not my favorite movie of the 70s, although I absolutely love it. But I think it might be the best movie of the 70s. And I don't mean that necessarily in terms of being, you know, objectively the greatest film made during that decade. I actually think Alien is the greatest film made during that decade. I think Apocalypse Now embodies more fully the totality of the experience of living in that time period um, in a way that is audacious and poetic and prophetic and... uh, feels like just an impossible movie. Like, Jamie, you mentioned the, how hard it was to get made. I mean, the documentary on it, which I know you, I'm sure you guys have seen, but anybody listening to oh, this yeah. who hasn't, the documentary made about the making of Apocalypse Now is almost as good as the movie is, which is really saying a lot because the movie is one of the great films ever made. It was an extraordinary thing. And it was made by people who were really, really, really young, right? Marlon Brando maybe wasn't quite as young, but but the cast, the crew, Francis Ford Coppola was very young. And it brings me to something else that I want to touch on, which is that two of the people who are most responsible for that movie, Francis Ford Coppola and John Milius, were students in the 60s and early 70s and made this basically as people coming out of school, right? So Coppola was at UCLA, John Milius was at USC. Who else was at USC when John Milius was? George Lucas, John Carpenter. Um, it is absolutely, uh, D- uh, Dan O'Bannon, of course, was there. Um, you know, and then you have people at NYU, you have Martin Scorsese and Brian De Palma speaking about Carrie, right? Um, you also had people like Wes Craven, David Lynch, James Cameron, George Romero, William Friedkin, Jonathan Demme. All these people were watching movies in film school in the late 60s and early 70s. And then they came into a system that basically was open and waiting for them because there were no studios to make contracted movies anymore. And they were like, well, what do you have, right? So something I, I wanted to touch on in addition to that is how important it was what was going on in Europe at the time with cinema, right? So um, all of those things, Jamie, you mentioned earlier, like film noir, B-movies, all these things that had defined a lot of Hollywood in the 40s and 50s were being watched by Europeans and then made uh, in very different ways as a response to it. And as a result of that, you have uh, the the neorealism movement in Italy, which of course is movies like Fellini and Rossellini, which I brought up on on this podcast in the past. That's some of my favorite films ever made. And then in France, of course, that became the new wave with people like Godard and Truffaut and these movies that were just totally different to anything that Hollywood had ever made and really has ever made. They were so realistic and also so phantasmic 
and strange um, and yet believable. And uh, they pioneered a lot of things like, for example, being more agile with the filmmaking, getting more location shoots, getting out of the out of the big back lots and into, you know, real communities, which meant they had to use lighting differently. They had to adapt a lighter film stock. They had to make more mobile rigs for camera equipment. Um, and they had to shoot, you know, more at the same time just to get enough takes to use. And what I think we see happening in Hollywood then is that those, because those movies were being made basically between the late 40s and the mid to late 60s, that's what people in film school were studying at places like UCLA and USC and um, NYU. And so like when they were studying that stuff, when they came into their own, they took those ideas, they took the neorealism from Italy, and they took that experimentalism from the French New Wave, and they made what would have been Hollywood movies with it, but they didn't look like Hollywood movies anymore. And I think that's why we have these huge shifts happening in genres, why we see sci-fi taking these big leaps, why we see horror becoming serious and becoming, you know, totally different from what it had been previously, um, and why we see movies like Rocky, which I know, Mike, you, you, you can talk about Rocky. But that that's a movie that I feel like uh, could never have been made at any other point in film history other than 1976. Oh, agreed. I mean, it, it's it's a perfect sports movie. And I mean, it's just it, it was such a passion project from Stallone. I mean, w w what's the story? He wrote it in a night. And it's just I remember seeing it in the theater. My dad dra dragged me to it because he was a huge uh, boxing fan. And I had no interest. You know, I was a eight year old, nine year old kid. I'm sorry, six-year-old kid, and and I just from from the minute that movie started, my eyes were just popped, and I just couldn't believe what I was watching, and all the way to the end, I mean that movie just just grips you, and it's so imperfect, you know what I mean? Like the, it's yes. it doesn't look great. Stallone is not, I mean, you can't even understand what the fuck he's saying half the time, right? He's not like this oh. perfect star. Um, it's rough. Oh, you know, you need to back off right now about Stallone, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I mean, it, it's it's not that he that movie would not have been made 20 years earlier. And uh, and it was shot on such a tight budget. And then it just obliterated, you know, box offices again. It's just crazy. Yeah, it, it was it was almost like a gorilla film, you know, just no no wasted time. Just shoot, 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 shoot. Get it done. And it, it just it came out of masterpiece. That's one thing about the the style, and I, I talk about this in perfect in in our episodes of Perfect Organism all the time in reference to Alien and how realistic it felt. Uh, and you see a little bit that of that in Aliens as well, but specifically Alien, where there are people there, everyone's together in the in the same shot, and people are talking over each other. That is a very common '70s motif or or way of shooting a film. Robert Altman was was is famous was famous for that type of style and it's something that i love because it makes things feel real because that's what we do we do it in conversation whether it's on a podcast or whether we're at work where people end up talking all over each other and it just feels like you're sort of the fly on a wall in in either a spaceship or an office room or whatever um and you know what's funny is you see elements of that in in like some shows today like the office or um What's the other show? Parks and Recreation or Parks and Rec or whatever they call it, where they do sort of some of that, where the, those characters feel so real because the way they're filming it is like people are talking over each other and you see these glances here and there and the shots don't seem perfectly set up. And that's what was going on in most of those movies in the 70s, which I think is why they feel so important and why they, they're so indelible is because they felt wholly real. And that would be into another conversation about why the alien films aren't good these days because that really <laughs> is dumb. But that's a, that's a, a topic for another conversation. 
<laughs> well, you also like in, in, in a lot of these movies we mentioned, you you know, if, if when you see them on the big screen, you actually feel like you're in the movie, like it's all happening around you. Yes, yes. You know, because of the reasons you just spoke about, because of just how real it felt. Well, it's like we were talking know? on the Patreon Jaws episode. Jamie, you were mentioning the shot in Jaws 2 of the helicopter. Like, there there are moments where you're put in the actual first-person perspective even, right? Where it's not even just, yeah. like, imperfect or the framing is, is not just even kind of, you know, personal. But it actually puts you, like, your, your line of sight in the movie. It feels totally personal. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's the word right there, the key word, personal. It feels personal. It feels like you are, aren't just watching the film. You're either another crew member on the Nostromo. You're another uh, shipmate on, um, what's the name of the ship? The Orca. Orca? Yeah, yep. in Jaws. Or or several other films, or most of the other films, or in Close Encounters. You feel like you're on that journey with Richard Dreyfuss' character while he's, you know, and you're discovering things with him. It's also the... The, the way that they filmed and the way films were written back then, um, it's the sense of discovery, but it, it, it the, the decisions, the creative decisions that the directors and the writers and probably the studio heads are making made it feel like the audience was just as smart as the characters and you were all all of these things were unfolding at the same time so you felt sort of equal there was no this oh that stupid horror character why are they going down in that basement that didn't even exist at that point or if it did it was so new that we weren't we weren't saying that yet because it wasn't a trope yet now that thing those types of things are tropes so we're like oh yeah we've seen this 10 times before um but i again even just the the, the creative choices that they're making in terms of camera setup where the camera's positioned where the mics are positioned how many people are talking at one time it all worked together to create this sense of realism that does not exist anymore in film and the characters i i feel like when the, when some of these people sat down to write some of these movies we've been talking about they really put an emphasis on the character you know i i, I cared what was happening to rocky I, I cared what was happening to richard dreyfus's character and close encounters whose name escapes me right now or, or Brody, a lot of the movies right now, I could care less what happens to these people, you know, but, but back then, man, I, you know, I, I was like, I was with them for the ride. I cared. I wanted to see, you know, good things happen to these characters. And look how much we care about a character like Travis Bickle, right? Like that is a character who at any other point in time, I think we would write off as, you know, I mean, just an outright villain, if, if not um, somebody that we wouldn't want to, you know, think about too much. But that character is so indelible and written in such a dexterous way that we feel really like we understand even you know when it gets very dark what he's doing you talking to me and it doesn't feel like we're watching him it feels like we're experiencing it with him and i, I want to circle around to something about that um and i think what what i'm thinking it, this is kind of an emergent thought so i'm going to be clumsy getting it out but i think that there's something about the way things are filmed in the 70s and the way things are framed, literally cinematographically speaking, in the 70s and the way things are written in the 70s and the types of chances that were happening in the 70s that were being taken that speaks to this idea that the subjective is important. And what I'm getting at with that is in the, bear with me for a second, in the 19th century, you had this emergence of the romantic movement in art and literature and music, right? Which I think I brought up on Perfect Orgasm a long time ago, but basically the, the figure that you that we think of as like the prototypical romantic composer is Beethoven.
because prior to that, music was very much about craftsmanship. It was very much about a product that could be beautifully engineered and was really beautiful and expressive, but was really tailor-made for an audience, right? A musician sitting in a court in Vienna in 1740 could get a piece of sheet music and sight-read it perfectly fine because it was so conventional. Even when it was interesting and, and somewhat avant-garde, you kind of knew what you were getting. Hollywood studios in the for in the sort of 1935 to 1960 era were making movies that were just like that. You couldn't really even tell who was directing it most of the time. You didn't necessarily know who was writing it. You knew the stars because that was sort of what you were going to see. And it's not to say that the movies made during that era aren't wonderful, but it's that they're not strange. In a deep way, they're not strange. But strangeness, of course, is the gateway to the subjective, and strangeness is what Beethoven took and ran with in the 19th century with the Romantic movement, which is, which is saying, basically, my idea of what music is and my idea of a story that I want to tell is worth you understanding. I'm going to put it out there in the world, and you're going to have to figure it out and come along on this journey because I have something in me that needs to come out. And I think what we see in the 70s, especially in the second half of the 70s, is an entire ecosystem of filmmaking that's saying that. It's saying, Brian De Palma, I don't know what you can do. I know I like your thought processes when we've spoken. Here's a script. Do something with it. Try something crazy, right? And paying to see what a Brian De Palma movie would look like and how that would stand in juxtaposition, for example, to a Ridley Scott film, right? And not wanting them to feel similar. That's the thing, is that there was this real emphasis on strangeness, I think, in the 70s. On people trying stuff out and doing it in a way that would make the audience and make the film-going world have to keep up with them, right? You have, I mean, and, and, and even things like The Godfather, right? That the, the book by Mario Puzo is totally, you know, it's not a bad book, but it's not a, some sort of a, a groundbreaking masterpiece. The movie that was made out of it is one of the great pieces of art produced in the 20th century by Western civilization. And that is a movie that nobody other than Francis Ford Coppola could have possibly made. And he did because the studio said, OK, just go with it. <laughs> you have some ideas. We'll bank it. Just do something crazy and make us some money. And what's crazy to me is that it did make money. It wasn't just strange. It was profitable. And that is totally, totally gone. And the last thing I want to say about this, and then I'll shut up, is, Jamie, you mentioned earlier that we are kind of in a similar place sociologically now as we were in the 70s in some ways, and that our confidence in, uh, in institutions, especially our government and, you know, et cetera, is, is eroding. We don't really know what it means anymore to be, you know, America, what it means anymore. Our traditional notions of who we are and what we stand for are really getting put into question. And there's a lot of fighting about it and a lot of confusion about it. And what's really frustrating to me is that our art is fucking not reflecting that at all. And you look at the 70s, look at the fucking art that came out of the Vietnam War. Look at the incredible gamut of art that came out of people responding to this idea that they didn't know the next step. Where is that right now? Why is it only escapism I, that's profitable? I Actually, I would disagree with you. Uh, I would say that you can find most of that on st streaming services. Like I think of uh, a show on HBO called Succession. I think about uh, so many. Oh, well, there's a couple different couple different things. Number one, I think you are right where it's escapism. It's Marvel. It's we need a hero. We want a hero. But 
we don't know what to do, so let's just go escape into the theater and let this phony Captain America save our world, and we can find solace in that. Um, but then again, you have films like documentaries, like I watched a documentary last night called uh, Citizen Four about Edward Snowden, um, which was a really, really brave film that I recommend anyone yeah, watch. Yeah, good. It won Academy um, Award, too. Yeah, uh, and um, I think that the art is there. It's just not as, as dominant as it was. Where I think back in the 70s, it was a real – what was going on, the reflection happening in the Hollywood system was because that's the only place it could be. Whereas now you have 10,000 different streaming services and they're they're like, no, we want content. We want content. We want content. And even like, of course, uh, one of my favorite series now is The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, which deals with uh, a sort of uh, – uh, what do you call it? Uh, a, a race of elf-like characters being gaslit by their government to believe something is happening and they discover that something else is happening and that they're being used for everything. And so they sort of have to rise up and fight against it. Very apropos as to what's happening today. Um, and I think that those stories are everywhere, but you have to look a little bit deeper for them. The, the stories that are in the theaters, for the most part, are the escapist, um, let's not think about our problems. Um, and I think we're in such a dire place emotionally, socioeconomically, like in terms of uh, just what capitalism is doing to us as a, uh, not just as an American culture, but as, as a world culture. But I think before we sort of found a way out, like in the seventies and there was, there, they seemed to be more of an answer. Like, well, let's just bring this stuff to light. Let's have this conversation. Whereas now I feel like no one knows what to do. And so what are we doing instead? We're losing ourselves into streaming content in, and we're binging ourselves into oblivion. And we're seeing every superhero film that comes out because no one knows what to do because capitalism is grinding us into the ground. Um, and that's just a supposition. I'm not saying that that's exactly all everything that that's happening, but that's something that I see that is happening because also in the seventies, then you have the eighties and all of a sudden the Hollywood system pivots to more idyllic, more celebratory, brighter colors, fun movies, different movies. Like the, the films turn into something completely different in the eighties. It's like the fifties all over again, but more of a woke version of the fifties, but everything was fun and great. And we're thinking about the future and you know, we're in the eighties. So the two thousands aren't that far away. And, but today we don't have that optimism. Whereas I think in the seventies, it was just a different phase. So I don't, that's the only, I know I kind of rambled a little bit, but that's the only thing I, that's the only response that I have right now. Well, going in the eighties, I mean, you, that that's when we got the, the, the cop movie, the lethal weapons, the diehards, all that stuff. And I mean, don't get me wrong. Lethal weapon one was probably Mel Gibson, one of his greatest performances, but it just got, it got very schlocky. I mean, it was, it was generic action hero one, two, three, in these movies it just got it got old real fast and, and it I, became it became all about like this idea of like superior firepower right it, it, i feel like so many of the movies in the 80s that we that are, are, i mean i love a lot of these movies i'm not shitting on them but oh, so much of it was like as long as we're stronger and have more ammo than the other side we will <laughs> obliterate them and let's just watch ourselves do that hey i just saw the new rambo movie so i can't complain about you know <laughs> that those movies <laughs> Oh my God. I can't even imagine how terrible that was. It was just so violent. It was just so violent. <laughs> how, is this, how are studios even giving him money for that shit? What do they even think is going to happen? How does he get money to, to fund those movies? Anyways, I know it's more, 
conversation. <laughs> but I just I, I look at I'm like you're doing another Rambo. You're doing how? Who's giving you money for this? Because of assholes like me that just keep going to see them. <laughs> <laughs> just just because it's habit. And also because um, there is a so, time and place for that. I mean, it's it's not like like it's it's not like these movies are are invalid. I mean, you you I mean, you know me. I fucking love superhero movies. I love I love that we have these. Mike, I know you're in the same boat. I'm so glad that we have these things as moments of cultural touchstones for us. Here's the thing. In the 70s, that was also still a thing. You had A New Hope. You had Star Wars coming out, right? That is a fundamentally optimistic, incredibly escapist view that in into you know where we could go and what we could do if we got out of this current world that we were in and we just got you know totally sucked into our imaginations and the avengers movies are fulfilling that same exact niche right now and they should be that's great entertainment and when it's done well it is incomparable it is so powerful and fun and it means that you go to work the next day and everybody's talking about it everybody's gathered around everybody's saying hey did you cry when did you cry what happened did you see this did you see that it's important as a culture that we still have those moments and i don't want to take anything away from it but a new hope came out you know at the same year as uh you know uh let's see the hills have eyes was another big hit that year right or something like uh uh, close encounters of the third kind it wasn't the only dominant film in 1977 that was just sucking all the air out of the box office there was so much other stuff going on that was very different that was providing a counterpoint to it and i feel like now we have all these films come out that are making you know 18 million dollars or 33 million dollars and they're just sort of going under the radar because there's so much going on and they're not becoming part of the cultural consciousness, you know? In the mid-70s, like, everybody saw uh, Cuckoo's Nest, right? Everybody saw Taxi Driver. Everybody saw Jaws. Everybody saw these films because that was kind of the thing you did, right? I mean, network television hadn't taken off the way that it has now. It was the thing, obviously, but it wasn't, like, the thing. Um, home videos were basically unheard of for much of that decade. Everybody was going to the movies. And it was guiding the, natu- the national and the global conversation in some ways that maybe were bad because it meant that everybody was kind of saying the same thing. But it meant that we were at least speaking in a language we could all understand, you know? There's a series out right now that I'm absolutely obsessed with by Gendry Tartakovsky called Primal on Adult Swim. And it is an amazing animated series. And I have tried to, I brought that up with like 20 people in the last two weeks and fucking nobody knows what I'm talking about. I'm like, this is a, an incredible work of art by one of the great animators of our of our lifetime. And, uh, and nobody <laughs> knows about it because it's one of 33 billion things you can watch at any given time. I guess what I'm getting at is that there's this, there should be an equilibrium where the conversation isn't just guided by escapism. It's also really um, guided in a way that is not nihilistic by movies that deal with really hard topics that everybody sees anyway, because it's important to see that and to talk about it. Well, I'll make a deal with you, Patrick. You get off your ass and watch Strange Days. I'll, I'll give Primal a shot. Oh, oh yeah. We still got to uh, do that. We do. Yeah, I, I just threw that gauntlet down. <laughs> <laughs> What's Primal again? So Prime Primal is a it's on Adult Swim, which if you if you have a cable subscription, you can oh, see it. Oh, that's the Tartakovsky. Tartakovsky, right? Yeah. So right? it's the same guy that did like Samurai yeah, okay. Jack, and he's done a lot of amazing, yeah. amazing things. And it's this just this wonderful story with no dialogue at all about a caveman and a dinosaur coexisting. And it's just like one of these things where you just sit there and your jaw is on the floor. It's so beautiful and it's so violent and it's so elemental. And it's like just it's just a it's a masterpiece. And like 35 people will see it. You know, it's one of it's one of these things that's just going to slip away again into this collective unconscious that we have as a society. And I'm not I'm not bemoaning that. Like, I'm glad people are getting the opportunity to make things. But I want to talk about it with people. And I want to talk about it with people who aren't just in my bubble. Right. 
like not like no offense i love you guys but i want to talk about it with other people too right who aren't just movie geeks like i want to be able to talk to my mom about you know a uh, a movie that i'd seen that she saw that was not something either of us would go to see but we went and saw it because there was a lot of peer pressure to see it because everybody was seeing jaws that summer like i want that feeling again i think uh to something that we're not talking about in 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 reference to what was sort of happening in the 70s culminating into alien which by the way apocalypse now and alien were both released the same year 79 as most of us know um but what's really informing or what's what wasn't informing cinema in the 70s and 80s and early 90s was social media so none of these conversations were happening art is where these conversations would happen now we have social media bombarding every nook and cranny of our lives and we're at this point collectively many of us were like i'm fucking sick of the news i don't want to see it anymore i'm it's everywhere i'm oh my god another trump post another this post another conservative post another liberal post like it's everywhere so the conversation and it's not just conversation from conglomerates that are sort of telling us what to believe it's all of the people who in the world the however many billion people 12 billion people who use facebook and instagram they're also having these conversations in the comment section so these conversations about our own worldview our own perception what's happening our opinion on what's happening it's everywhere so cinema doesn't corner the market anymore uh that market is for anyone um you log on to facebook and you can post your opinion and get tomatoes thrown at you or get all these likes because everyone agrees with you or whatever whatever kind of reaction you want it's there to be had on social media and in the 70s that wasn't happening so i think those films are a little bit more important not that films today aren't are less important but there's so much noise they're being sort of thrown into this pool where there's these 10,000 other things in the same pool. So I think art has almost lost its impact in some ways. And yes, cinema is art. So I really think that sort of scratching our heads and we're all, we're all sort of wondering like, well, what is it? Why is it? Where, where are all these things? They're there. They're just in the sea of 10 million other things that we have to figure out. Well, what do we want to watch? What do we know that is true? What's important? And, 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 you know, we're even at the point now where we have so much content from streaming services that we can turn on Netflix or whatever and not find a movie to watch. I do that all the time. Um, And that's how, that's how much noise there is in our lives today in the 70s and 80s that wasn't the case the voice of the people were was the cinema it was the the rock groups or you know um uh, simon and garfunkel and all of those people who were sort of shaping the, the voice of their generation even when i was growing up and i remember when you two released octune baby or, or even um the Joshua Tree and how it just changed the world and they were they're making public statements or they're making statements with their music and people were responding to that. None of that is I don't see that happening anywhere today. And I think in part it's because there's just a glut of of content. And there's so much of it we're we're drowning in it. Well, I'm actually glad you brought that up because I'm a huge Kevin Smith fan. I'll watch anything that idiot does. And I'm really excited to see his new Jane Silent Bob movie he's got coming out, you know, so I can shut my brain off for a little while. And I, I feel I feel like I've seen half the movie already on on Facebook and this. And, and I mean, that that's part of the problem, too. I mean, you, when you 
back in the seventies, you got a trailer. That was it. And now nowadays, I mean, you, you see half the movie by the time the movie comes out, and they 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 pack all the big stuff into these trailers to get you to go to the movie. And then when you get there, you've already seen that old stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I, I think that's a huge problem. I mean, they they got to start holding stuff back from the audience. I don't need well, to know and, everything. Yeah, and but you but that's happening in an environment where people demand information because we we live in a stream of it day in day out. Where you know you'd watch the evening news and that was it. So you have to wait till the next day. Now the evening news is 24 hours a day. You can check your phone for what's happening in news. What did what's happening in Congress? What's happening in Russia? What's happening in England? What's happening in Syria? Like you can find that information out any moment of the day. Whereas before everything was a little bit more of an, of an event going to the movies was an event, certainly in the seventies. Um, and in the eighties where let's, if you loved a movie, you'd watch it five times. Whereas these days, do you love a movie? Yeah. I'll wait till it comes out on, on demand and I'll buy it or whatever. And then you can watch it 10 times from the comfort of your living room or your bedroom or whatever you want to do. I feel like a lot of the, a lot of the, what made art and cinema special in the seventies and sort of during the time when it was being developed, because really again, cinema film was still a very new thing in the seventies and the eighties effects. Practical effects was a boom in the 1980s. And we were seeing things we had never seen before things that were possible, the puppets that they were making, the animatronics, all of those amazing things. And in the seventies, we were having conversations with ourselves in cinema that we weren't having um, ever before in the history of this country and certainly the world. And that was really, really refreshing. And I feel like all of that is gone. I feel like it is really hard to find that specialness. And when we do like Blade Runner 2049 or certain things that come out that really tap into the current zeitgeist and everyone's like, Oh my God, those are rare things. Well, I'm glad you brought up uh, the effects because that was a kind of a rabbit hole I wanted to go down and how they changed in, in that period. I mean, look at, you know, Superman. I mean, the whole tagline, you'll believe a man can fly and God damn it. You did watching that movie. And it was, I mean, there was no CGI or, or computer effects. I mean, at least not what we have today. I mean, I mean, Star Wars and, and Close Encounters. I won't talk about Jaws because, you know, the, the, the shark was what it was. You talking to me? And, and, <laughs> and Alien. It was I pretty mean, awesome. Uh, the shock was great. <laughs> it's fucking legendary, but you also don't see very much of it for a reason. Right. And, uh, and I mean, and an alien, I mean, to, to circle back, I mean, you never saw anything like that. I mean, just the movie in general. Yeah. When you were on the Stromo and stuff like that, it was kind of familiar to, you know, maybe some other movies you might've seen. Oh yeah, I got it. It's just, you know, spaceship, blah, blah, blah. But man, when you were on LV426 and, you know, in the derelict ship and oh my God, there was nothing, nothing like that. Nothing even yeah, I don't think anything like will be. No. But even you know, for the even the Nostromo, I mean, people were going into this thing expecting, you know, uh, a scene from, you know, the Millennium Falcon or expecting something from, you know, the Enterprise. They were expecting this I although I guess the Falcon doesn't really count, but like, you know, one yeah. of the one of the Corvette ships in, in um in Star Wars, where it's this very clean, very kind of sterile, very safe yeah. feeling environment where it's very much the 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 space that we saw in the fifties and sixties in two thousand one Space Odyssey, etc., where it was this like you know, like we'll get to the 
stars through our superior engineering, and that means that only the best and the brightest will get there, and it will be beautiful and pristine. And as soon as we see the opening, the establishing shots of the Nostromo, I mean, we're introduced to it by looking at the at the, the oil refinery that it's that it's um, towing, right? Like it, it's very clearly an industrial, messy thing. And then even as we're going through the corridors, it's beautiful. The production design is beautiful, but it's very lived in and it's very non-perfect. And in a way, I guess this is kind of a good way to start transitioning toward talking about Alien specifically in vis-a-vis 70s film. In a way, it is showing you physically what uh, films in the 70s were showing you in other ways, which is that the real world, like the, the reality is more complicated and dirty and less idealized than what we thought it was previously. That the people that are going to get the space are the people who are going to be at the mercy of corporations, right? It's not about... Because in the 50s, you know, we had one fucking World War II and we were on top of, of everything. And we had an economy that could just go forever and forever and forever. The 70s started with a depression, right? The 70s started with economic hardship. It started with political hardship. It started with geopolitical turmoil and it started with basically uh you know nothing and we as we built things up realized hey there's a lot of things we took for granted in the past that we should start actually being hard on now because now we know that the things that we thought were true uh might not necessarily be well i mean look at i mean you talk about dirty you talk about uh, cinema changing i mean let's not forget one of the highest grossing grossing movies in the 70s was deep throat you know that did that's right i know jamie I jamie doesn't forget that one <laughs> You talking to me? I only think about it because I just saw a documentary on it the other day. But I mean, th- that movie was making money. Oh, excuse the pun, hand over fist. <laughs> and you know, it's just it, talking about the culture. I mean, it, it it became almost a mainstream movie. You know, they were showing it in real theaters. Housewives yeah, are going to see it. Yeah, it was sort of the beginning of the normalization of porn in our everyday life the idea that yeah we all watch porn or we've all watched it in our lives it's as opposed to this like puritanical oh sex is bad until you're you know what i mean it was very interesting it was a very it was a, a big turning point for for cinema and i think it it did so well and it embarrassed a lot of people that it was doing so yeah well. and, I, and i think you, you can't know. look at that without looking at horror emerging alongside porn as a mainstream genre right and it, they might be different right. things but in some ways they're similar those are both things that had special movie showings you might be embarrassed about telling people you went to go see it um there were obviously different audiences but in a lot of ways those are similar and they kind of emerged into the main public consciousness at the same time as something where like it wasn't taboo to talk about and to again to sort of walk closer towards alien i think about um what alien is and uh, you know we've br- talked about the film and the films so much and so many different aspects and layers of the films but i really feel like the undiscovered country or the the subject we don't talk about with alien but that's rears its head but it's also rearing its head in cinema in the 70s is the idea that the corporate structure that you're working under does not have your best interest at heart they don't give one rat's ass about you they just want what you can provide for them and whether or not the alien on that ship was ash or the alien itself and uh, that's something that I've been thinking about quite a bit. But it, again, it's something that was happening in films. And Alien was particularly scary because not only were these crew members aboard this ship in the middle of space, you know, months or, you know, six months away from Earth, uh, the only protection that they had from death 
in outer space was that ship. And the ship was not just crawling with some creature that they didn't know where it was, but that they could sort of handle that. They had an agent of the company there to ensure the survival of this thing. And to me, that what was, was that's what was more scary. When Ripley is confronted by Ash, and all of a sudden you see Ash sort of make that turn and he's staring at her and he's not saying anything to her. And so she is now, there's a double threat on this ship. And this android knows that her life is worth less than the creature that's on this ship. And again, it's the idea that uh, commerce is more important than human human life and it's something that you know we see you know play itself out again even in, in uh, citizen four the documentary that i saw last night and uh where companies are going but where they were where they were back then and even in the, the early studio days early hollywood studio days they sort of owned their studio actors lock stock and barrel i mean they 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 not only um had them sign contract for multiple pictures. They said, you should probably marry this person. You need to make a public appearance. You know, so for instance, if there was a, a, a an actor that was gay, they would make sure they would marry him off. Um, if there was say like Judy Garland, she was a child performer and they drugged her up to keep her performing. And of course we heard all of that stuff started to unravel in the late sixties. We started hearing about all of these things. And again, the movement in cinema was really uh, an opening of that wound. Say, yes, life isn't what you think thought it was. These, these, these corporations in charge have never had your best interest at heart. They've only had commerce. Commerce is their number one goal. Not you, not what you're doing, not your husband, not your wife or your kids. You're fucked. And alien is so terrifying because of that. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I mean, Waylon Yutani is the bad guy in that movie. I mean, not the alien. The alien is just doing what the alien does. You know, you can't fault it. Same thing with Jaws. I mean, the shark does what the shark does. The bad guy is the mayor who keeps the beaches open. You know, um, but I, I totally. agree 100%. It, it, it's, it's frightening. You know, these people were sent out basically to die. And, you know, that's not good. Nobody wants to do or that. Basically to <laughs> die or, or to or to be like, well, whatever happens, happens. You're expendable. So if you make it back, great. But that's, you know, that's not where, you know, that's not where the company's head is at. Um, and, uh, again, I, I really think that what's at the heart of Alien, what makes Alien and Aliens and Alien 3, even though we are just, you know, sort of moving to the discussion on Alien, what makes those stories so good, why they're so timeless is because it's a human journey at the center. That is what's important. It is, can Ripley get off that ship? Can Dallas find the alien in the, in the, the corridors or the vents? Um, can Lambert and Parker get enough oxygen? Can they get out? It was the human drama and their lives are at stake, not because of the alien per se. Yes, that was a factor, but it was the, the company. It was at the company's behest for them to stop, for them to go. And that to me was the most scary. I think I think about like films that are scary. What films scare me the most? The films that scare me the most are films that feature sort of faceless people in, in the woods or after they're after you and you don't know why they're after you, but you don't matter to them and they want to kill and destroy you more than any creature, more than any anything. When sort of another human has become non-human and they're out to terif ter terrify and destroy the, the protagonist in the story and 
Wayland Yutani was that protagonist or was that antagonist in Alien. And that's why that film, in my opinion, I mean, there's many reasons, the, the, the lighting, the sets, the everything that sort of came together to bring us that amazing film. But it's really the human story at the heart of that film is why that story, why that film is, is so good. And it's also a timely story for what's going on in society. And of course, the real horror in Alien, and I don't mean the terror, but the horror in Alien is Ash. And what's interesting about Ash is that he is as close to human as you can get. But in the way that he's not human, he is like infinitely frightening um, because he represents the actual intentions of this organization, of this company. He represents what the actual danger is that people can present to each other. And the alien is terrifying because it is unpredictable and because, you know, it's hunting you. But we have we see that as humans, we have this ability to conceptualize of dangers in terms of where we come from. Right. We all know that somewhere in our brainstem, we have some kind of an element memory of running from a tiger or of being hunted by a bear or of trying to escape something we know what fight or flight means but what does it mean when you can't fight nor flee and you're actually just a cog in a machine that you didn't even realize existed until it was traumatically revealed to you and you realize that you are not that you are being deliberately um, mishandled by your fellow person that is like such a deeper fear that is so much harder to contextualize and i know i bring up alex garland a lot on the show because he should direct the next alien movie but whatever i think that um part of why annihilation the film works so well in that way is because it's really unclear what exactly the intent of the alien is right you watch it and you can tell that there's something threatening going on you can tell that there's mimicry going on and you can tell that like it's clearly um, dangerous because of that but it's sort of like why like what is what is the deeper meaning behind this what what is what's driving this action you brought up a great point because when alien first came out i mean we, we talked about this before patrick you know there was no internet or behind the scenes or anything like that you know we didn't know about the 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 egg morphing scene or or the cocooning for the queen however you want to you know fantasize their reproduction when we first saw that movie in 78 we had no idea what the alien wanted was were, were, was was the crew food was it just eating people i mean did it just kill to kill i mean even at the end of the movie you have no idea why the alien was doing the things it was doing and to me that is frightening totally and and it mirrors this bigger idea of like what does the company really do because like what is the what is the real added value of a xenomorph to the company right like how can you quantify quantify that how can you put it in terms of lives lost and that's where it gets weird it's like what the fuck is driving this company to be so destructive and then also likewise like what is the alien actually getting after because we don't see it eating people so like when so actually that's a great point mike when that part in our lizard brain goes off saying flee from the tiger um we're fleeing from the tiger because we don't want to be eaten by the tiger right but what happens when it doesn't show the tiger actually eating anybody when it just shows the tiger killing people and or, or maiming them and then dragging them away there's something else going on um and i think that layer of like of mystery to it means that this movie is uh is is more frightening because you end up being afraid of things that are more subjective um because it's what you're actually afraid of because you know what the alien is actually doing or what the company is actually doing isn't really that clear but what you see in it becomes the rorschach test of your own fear and i think if it's okay as we close um i want to just circle back around to how alien um is in a lot of ways the the ultimate endpoint of a lot of these tropes and a lot of these these um movements going on in 70s filmmaking and i wanted to start that final bit of this conversation off by saying i think it's the most subjective movie made in the 70s in mainstream hollywood
By that, I mean, we know, for example, from talking with Diane O'Bannon on an episode that, again, I really think if people haven't listened to it, go back. We released it on Alien Day, but it was there was another episode that came out right after it, so it, it, you might not have necessarily seen it on your feed. But we did this wonderful interview with Diane O'Bannon where she talked a lot about her husband, and she talked a lot about how... Um, for example, he would be on an airplane and he would hear people in the seat in front of him talking about how afraid they were of xenomorphs and how it was so unsettling for him because to him, the idea of an alien of, as we know it was very personal. That was his alien. That was something that he was just afraid of that he didn't have words for, but he knew was unsettling because he didn't like bugs and he didn't like this idea. He, he, he knew that it was like a, a potent metaphor for, you know, for, for um, you know, being sexually violated and things like that. It was all these things kind of floating around in his head that he was afraid of, but it was his. Like, that was what he was afraid of, right? And then you have H.R. Giger, who created maybe the most subjective, frightening, surrealist art ever, because it was completely from his, you know, the, the back of his brain. You know, you see videos of him airbrushing on set, and he his eyes are glazed over. He's not even looking at the canvas. He's just trapped in some weird part of his limbic system where nightmares spring from, and he's just translating it into the canvas. That's not to say that he didn't have, like, an artistry to it. Obviously, he had incredible technique, and he would plan things out. But as he was executing it, it was such a subjective journey for him. It was going deep down within and creating something that um, could not have come from any other person. It was just his vision of what this terror could represent. And then you have Ridley Scott, who, again, was just starting off as a feature filmmaker. He had made one incredible film before this. He had this company going strong. He had a lot to prove. And he basically went out there to kick shit and approve to the world what a filmmaker he was. And I, I really emphasize he in this because he wanted to show the world this is what a Ridley Scott film looks like, right? This is what my movie is going to be. And because of that, he was able to convince the studio to let him add an entire act to the movie, right? So the, so the film, again, wouldn't resolve like a typical sci-fi movie would before this. The film ends with a question mark, right? It ends with a surprise final attack sequence, and then it ends with Ripley adrift in space. It is not a, re a resolution. And that's really Scott. That really Scott wanted to make sure they could film that. So I guess what I'm saying is that it is a an auteur movie, just like the movies of Coppola, etc. Were um, it is a uh, it is a movie that's that could only have sprung from the imaginations of these very particular people because it is so strange and so unlike other films before it or after it. And because of that, it's truly indelible. And I think it is uh, is just the perfect example of this move in the 1970s towards taking strange chances on personal expression and being brave about it and doing something that audiences will have no choice but to engage on and talk about. Absolutely. Yeah, it was it was definitely the perfect storm. It was the like like you said, it was Giger O'Bannon. It was really it was the three right people at the three right time at, at the, the, the perfect time. And they, they come out with the absolute perfect movie. I mean, it's just beautiful on all fronts, you know, and that just translates. I mean, to the cast. I mean, they they got it. And it was just I, I honestly I can't I can't say enough about that movie. I could sit here all night and just go on about it it seeing seeing that movie actually changed my entire opinion of cinema and, and what a movie should be mike can i ask you how old you were when you saw it he was 300 years old <laughs> he was 300 uh, I, I was a year younger than you um no i came out what 78 um so i probably what a year year and a half before it came on cable so nine ten years old Oh, okay. All right. When I when I first saw it, and like I I I just couldn't even comprehend what I was seeing. 
And for years after that, every time I'd see the movie again, I would just find something different about it. Like, like to me, one of the biggest unanswered questions in my mind, the, the space jockey, they found him. His chest was burst out. Where, where is that xenomorph? Whatever happened oh, yeah. to, to that Xeno? Where, where was, you know, to me, that's one of the biggest unanswered questions in, to that movie. That That's something that always... I always get hung up on. That's the beauty of Alien is that there are so many unanswered questions and they, the filmmakers and the writers knew that that those questions were enough for us that we were more, we are intelligent enough to not need to know anymore. And, uh, we, and we continue to wonder what was the space jockey? What was inside of him? Where, where did it go? And it was the silence of the space that they were in, in terms of the, the derelict, just the complete silence, except for that haunting and beautiful score. Um, it's man, it's just a, it's a film that just continues to give and give and give. There's nothing like it. And again, that's the seventies, right? Like the seventies was the era of treating audiences like they were fucking intelligent and not giving them very much to go on and taking them on this journey. Like part of the experience was figuring out what this filmmaking crew was trying to tell you and going with it and maybe not getting it the first time, but going back and seeing it again. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, like I said, the first time I saw it, I was just, you know, the visuals were amazing. And then, you know, the older I got, the more I got to appreciate, you know, the acting and like you said, the lighting, the sets, you know, as, as I grew as a person, the, the movie kind of grew with me and, you know, to me anyways. And I just, it, I, I'm so excited to go see it again tomorrow night. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, a couple other things, just as we were talking, I was taking some notes on, on what we were all kind of bringing up as hallmarks of, of 70s films that we really loved. And I, I just was, you know, thinking we can kind of wrap, I can kind of touch back on a couple of those things and kind of tie back to Alien. Um, one of them was realism. You know, we talked about it in terms of neorealism in Italy and, and the French New Wave, and we talked about it in terms of simultaneous dialogue, shaky camera work, location shooting and things. Alien is a great example of so many of those techniques. A perfect, you know, um, example of this is the dialogue, which is sometimes borderline unintelligible. Even when they went back with ADR, like, you know, for example, when Ripley's on the engineering deck and she's getting cut off by the steam, like, it's still sort of hard to tell what the hell's actually being said, and it's dirty. You know, some of the best scenes in the film, like when they're all around the table, you know, in the in the mess hall there, uh, there's just a million things being said and none of it is clear, right? Like you can stop and take a second and, and listen to it and be like, okay, I guess they're sort of having this conversation. But it's not like, but the dialogue is not the point. It's what's happening. It's the greater storytelling that's unfolding as a result of these characters interacting with each other. And that is something that I don't think would have existed, especially without French cinema um, in the 50s and 60s. Um, also, the handheld camera work. It's so easy with alien to forget how much of it is actually handheld because the way it was shot was so smooth and so careful i mean and again i i you know i've, I've said this in the past I, I think alien is the most beautifully shot movie ever made i think it's and ridley scott did a lot of that himself too um i think it is just so carefully framed and so deliberately lit and so beautifully laid out but a lot of it is handheld um, and I think that that is something that, you know, you can see very clear analogs to in The Bicycle Thief from Italy, you know, from 20 years before the movie came out, 30, 30 years before the movie came out. Um, this idea of having, you know, mobile rigs to be able to get interesting angles on things and to put the audience in the shoes of the people on the screen. Um, you also had a cast that was basically all character actors. It was all people from very different walks of life, very different cinema experiences. They were not young for the most part. Some of them, you know, obviously um, Sigourney Weaver was. But most of them were in their like 40s and 50s. They weren't spring chickens. They were um, they were established actors who had made interesting 
character choices throughout their careers, and they were handpicked for this movie basically because they had the chops for it, not because they would have had this huge pedigree. And Sigourney Weaver, who of course was sort of this young starlet after this movie came out, um, was largely unknown as a as an entity to U.S. audiences. She was somebody who was just kind of coming out when this movie happened. Um, so that's another thing too. This idea of of these character actors bringing these you know nuanced and interestingly idiosyncratic um, characters to life. Um, and, and the other thing I wanted to say is uh, in terms of um, realism is is the fact that it doesn't resolve at the end. That it ends with this question mark and this ellipse. And all of these movies, a great example being Apocalypse Now, they end with this unanswered question. And to me, the seventies is the era of the beautiful question that never gets an answer. And I think a lot of the movies we've talked about tonight, whether that be Star Wars, whether that be um, Taxi Driver, whether, whether that be Close Encounters of the Third Kind, whether it be Apocalypse Now, whether it be Alien, they end non-traditionally. They don't end with people riding off into the sunset. They end with people stuck in a situation that kind of doesn't have an easy answer to it. And that's it. The movie ends with that. Um, and so we go off into the night questioning what we just watched, questioning what's going to happen to those characters down the road. And they live on in our minds, you know? They don't live on happily ever after. And I think that's something that... Um, couldn't have existed in any other era of filmmaking. And I think you can most clearly see the fact that these questions are beautifully unanswered by the films that came after it in the 1980s, which was all about the answer. The really popular films in the 80s were all about setting up a situation and giving it a fucking exclamation point at the end of it, right? Um, which, of course, is, is a huge generalization. But even filmmakers like Brian De Palma, right, who went on to make a lot of movies in the 80s, and Steven Spielberg made a lot of movies in the 80s, they their movies changed. They became more triumphant. They became more predictable in some ways. They became less subjective and more about a viable, triumphant product that was still interesting to watch and fun, but had this air of, we are not going to be... Uh, taken advantage of by mysterious forces we those forces aren't mysterious we can see them and we can defeat them and that was a huge change in the 70s really benefited in my opinion from not having that do you think that's because they became proven and had and were able to they couldn't take as many risks when once they got you know their superstardom you know they had to produce they had to make movies they had to make you know blockbusters they couldn't you know take a chance on a jaws or an alien that people said oh you can't make this movie I don't know. I mean, they were still taking chances, but the properties they were taking chances on weren't as um, strange to me. It was more like, let's find new properties that we can franchise. Like a great example of that is E.T., I think, which is one of my favorite movies, and I'm not taking anything away from it. But that's a movie that presents a really optimistic view of the world and that there are bad guys out there and that we can escape from them, that we're going to be okay, right? Like that's that to me is like the prototypical 80s film. Um, and uh, and I'm not taking anything away well, from it, but it's maybe, triumphant. Uh... I don't know if it's triumphant. I would say just because E.T. actually the the picture that Spielberg paints of the family is a dire one. They're not happy. The, the, the mother is divorced. It's not an idea like American society. She just seems really unhappy. The kids seem sort of all over. Um, and then these events happen. And the ending is a bit triumphant, but I don't, I wouldn't say, I would say it's still a very much a reflection of where the world is at that point, where it's, we're showing people from broken marriages and the aftermath of those broken marriages and how the kids are dealing with those broken marriages. It's very realistic to me, E.T. At least it starts off very realistic. And then by the end of it, you're like, it's so much about the animal, but I feel like it, it's still, it's still very realistic even by the end. I I wouldn't say it's like triumphant, like um, 
I don't know, the never ending story or something like that. I feel like it's really grounded in realism still. Sure, but I think, you know, at, at the end, it, you it, you leave the movie with a fundamental sense that the world will become better. You, you, you leave the movie with this idea that, like, love will basically win and that we mm-hmm. will find a way back. I, I think I mm-hmm. think that's what I'm saying, is the, is the 80s was the era of, of finding a road home again. And yeah, yeah, I would agree. There's a lot of reasons Sorry. for that, I think, but yeah, yeah. but there and and it's not something we can address on this podcast. But I, I just think it's yeah. interesting to 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 wonder like why that is, why it became you know the era of you know first blood, and, and why those are the movies that started to really become popular. I mean, look at Rocky Four, right? Here's a great example. I I, I love Rocky Four. Okay, I'm not taking anything away from Rocky Four, but look at what a different film that is from Rocky, which wasn't even that you know much earlier than it. Uh, that is to me like the the classic example of the. 70s being the era of you know the sloppy beautiful experiment that does something incredible and is confusing and you know you leave and you think what the hell did i just watch i want to go see it again and the 80s was like let's fucking destroy russia in a movie and uh, and (laughs) chant and cheer about it right well i mean look at lethal weapon one compared to two i mean in one he's this you know suicidal depressed miserable and you you go into two and he's just wisecracking you know again 80s action star B, you know, um, the first one was a dark movie and that was the best one. They should have stopped there. They shouldn't have made him so cheery and happy after that. I'm getting too old for this shit. <laughs> well, I think the 80s, I mean, Lart, I know we're about to wrap up, but the 80s was really the pivot back to the idealism of the 50s where things became brighter and more colorful and people wanted to be a little bit more happy. And it was a pivot away from the really dire consequences dire conversations we were having but necessary conversations we were having with film pre in the decade prior and people wanted to have hope and i really feel like the 80s were the films of hope and what was possible as opposed to everyone's lying to you you're gonna die um good luck Anyway, thank you guys so much. I think we can we can wrap with that. Um, and uh, maybe it'll yeah. be fun to go back to you know the aliens um, series at some point, Jamie, and we can take a look back at like how the culture of the '80s film you know played itself out with with aliens, which I think plays on a lot of the conventions of it, and in some totally. ways almost like destroys it because in some ways Aliens was so good, just like Alien was so good that they both kind of capped off a a tradition. They basically set a bar so high that everybody else was just sort of going, okay, that's that's what filmmaking was at that point. In time what else can we do right um but this has been great was, thank you Mike, was, for coming on this has been a lot of fun oh no um, thank you guys this was great i'm uh i hope it was good <laughs> oh yeah it was great thanks mike R- really appreciate it uh, anytime guys patrick right. i'll see you tomorrow i'll see you in a few hours buddy bye yeah all right bye for more on perfect organism the alien saga podcast please visit perfectorganism.com. Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.